Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Today we're welcoming artist, Emmy-nominated composer, producer and broadcaster Hannah Peel onto the podcast, who recently won an MPG award for UK Original School Recording of the Year. So huge congratulations on that, first of all, Hannah. Thank you, yes. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> How did it feel to win? Where were you when you found out? Um, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um <laughs> But yeah, no, oh, I think I was in London at the time. Actually, yeah, sorry, I do remember because I had been to London to see my first concert since 2019, November 2019. Um, I was with the Manchester Collective, who are an amazing contemporary music ensemble. They play like traditional stuff as well, but um, they are really wonderful at commissioning new artists and composers to make music for them. Uh, so they had a concert in London that I went to and I couldn't, yeah, I mean, it was unbelievable. So I was actually in London, I think it was like the day after that, that concert that I got the call saying, oh, you've been, you've been, you've won. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, an incredible honour and one that I celebrated with two other people because it's not just me that is involved. I think what's wonderful about the MPG is that it recognises the mixing and the engineering as well. And obviously it's about production. It's not just about the composer. Yeah, of course, they recognise the whole process, don't they? Yeah, and I think that's really important because a lot of people behind the scenes often don't get a look in at all um, and in particular because this record then I say record but it was put out as an album but because the score had um been recorded in Northern Ireland the the engineers and mixers that don't normally get a kind of looking into the UK music scene you know Northern Ireland is not it's not London (laughs) so um so I think it was really important for all of us that actually they were acknowledged as well. Okay, yeah, that's lovely. Um, so I can hear um, from you anyway. I know you've been nominated for a few things, not just for the MPGs, of course. Um, do you ever get used to being nominated? Is it always a really lovely surprise? And uh, well, maybe not surprise is the right word. A nice recognition every single time. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a surprise for sure, because I don't intend to ever set out and get nominated. <laughs> so, um, But yeah, to be recognised and be acknowledged and... You know, what I think is really lovely and what I'm really proud of is more that I've done it independently and everything's been done very independently and in-house, like with my manager and, and you know, whether it's been the kind of Emmy nomination or the MPD or even like the Mercury's is, is that I've not kind of um, done it with a, a massive support system. So it feels even more rewarding in some sense. Like it's not been a given you know, I've worked in this industry now um, like 16 years from, you know, sessioning and teaching music to then releasing solo records to then scoring and, you know, orchestrating and and arranging for a lot of big artists as well. But you kind of go from job to job and you do it and you kind of, you know, I work with Paul Weller a lot and and you kind of think, I'll never get recognised for stuff. (laughs) So, or, you know, especially the MPG, I think what matters most for for me for that award in particular is the fact that I'm named as producer and I never would have called myself a producer um and I guess I am because I produce all my own stuff and things it's just I don't I've never had the confidence to shout about it and I think that's it's a really lovely thing to to have 
that those sort of skills acknowledged because they come as part of the job but you forget about them in some ways yeah I was going to ask you about that actually because I saw that you wrote on Instagram when you announced that you'd won the MPG and that you wouldn't have had the confidence before to say you were a music producer so why do you think something's changed for you now where you feel like yes I can say this now um I guess it was when I did the when I did the Game of Thrones soundtrack. I think that's when it all started to change because I think once you get acknowledged for something, you you start to view what you're doing differently. There's a an added element to it, and there's a focus, and, a, and especially a kind of like an outward focus on what you're doing on your everyday. And yeah, I didn't have the confidence to say that I was a producer. I, you know, initially, you know, I came from the background of I was a session musician and, you know, played lots of different instruments. And I just thought, oh, no, I'm more a composer and a, an instrumentalist. And it wasn't until I did the soundtrack for Game of Thrones that, you know, I was making the music without anybody else. I was engineering it. I was um, recording it and making sure that you know, all the elements were covered and creating the soundscapes. And they were things that I've always done, but just haven't focused on one place at one time. So then to be acknowledged for that score and, you, you know, I started to change my outlook. I guess maybe it's it's a confidence thing. It's a, it's a societal thing. Um, it's only the last kind of like four to five years that women have started to you know, had a, have a lot of focus on them. And I think, you know, getting the Emmy nomination in particular, it was the first year that there'd ever been a, a category for documentary music. And um, two of us were female. And in fact, um, Miriam Cutler, she was nominated for two documentaries. So, you know, three nominations. Um, I think it, you know, there's, and obviously like Hilda Gunatia winning kind of everything for Joker and Chernobyl. There's, there's definitely a shift in, in the, the kind of more composer producers, the background elements of, of females. And I I think that's a really important thing. And maybe I'm just on that kind of curve, but, you know, I guess one of the things that I would want to happen is that I never had a kind of female role model to look up to when I was younger. And I would hope that with all these kind of things that, people are more aware and they're making different decisions that that the younger generation can see that happening and can have the confidence to go hey I work in a studio and I'm a producer and I I want to engineer and see that as a job that's viable for them. Mm, Yeah it's a step in the right direction we're all aware of the very low statistics when it comes to women in audio I know that's a blanket term but um, at least there is some visibility now and the more we have these kind of conversations um hopefully people and young women and girls will start to see these kind of jobs as viable career options in future and just even just knowing about them I suppose maybe they wouldn't have it on their radar before exactly yeah and you know quite a lot of female composers are like I don't say I'm a female composer I don't use that term of course um and 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 they have every right to do that I do because I think it's really important to to shout about it because change does not happen until you actually make a statement about it um I don't want to be like I'm a female composer at all I want to you know but I, I think it's important to have those conversations and to to really um to make a point about it because actually it's the it's the influence and the inspiration for younger generations and that's the only thing that's going to change over the next 10 years mm, yeah like you say it's not a gimmick is it but you're just proud to be a female composer and hopefully it can inspire the next generation there's nothing wrong with that is there yeah and you know I'd, I wouldn't want 
I guess the quality of work. I wouldn't want to be have been nominated on this or have won this of the MPG award because I'm a female. I, you know, that is the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. But but the fact that they are listening, the the judges are listening to the score, they're listening to the quality of things, they're listening to the the production that's gone into it. It's uh, it's as equal as anybody else, and and I think that's a really um, it's a really incredible thing to be acknowledged for for anything really in in that respect and you know a lot of people have just been like you work so hard this is really so well deserved um you've been doing it for so long (laughs) so um it's amazing I'm really thankful about it all yeah lovely recognition there and um just for anyone that's listening that doesn't know so about Game of Thrones so you composed and recorded the soundtrack for the two-hour documentary Game of Thrones The Last Watched which earned you a Emmy nomination in the Outstanding Music Composition for a Documentary Series or Special Original Dramatic Score in brackets um and I watched the trailer again this morning to remind myself and it gave me chills just uh, remembering it and seeing all the cast all in tears and everything so I'm taking it were you a big fan of the show already <laughs> I'm I was the classic of like oh my god this series is so huge I am never going to even start this because I'm never going to get through it <laughs> um so when Jeannie Finley the director was started working on it uh she had contacted me I mean she had oh my god she had like 900 hours of footage to edit over you know she'd been working on it for like a year and a half mm. um I was brought in maybe halfway through that or just knew about it and told to sign an NDA so I couldn't talk about it. But yeah, I mean, it was amazing to work on and see all the things that are happening in the background and all those faces and people. And and so, yeah, I spent the whole, I moved house from, I left London and bought a house in Northern Ireland. And um, that summer, I remember so well because I had builders that were knocking walls and all I all I could do was just watch that. I just binge watched the whole of Game of Thrones because I had no other choice. I couldn't work at home. <laughs> so so that was technically my job for, for a month um, and totally got into it and loved it by the end. I think it's an incredible, impressive series. And then, yeah, when you're working on the documentary and you see that people have put 10 years of their lives into this and you know not seeing family not seeing their children grow up every week um it just changes your perspective on on what goes into something and I'm, I was really honored to kind of work on on a show like that it wasn't just about the stars and the cast it, it was all about the people that did the prosthetics and you know the extras and it was just a beautiful a beautiful documentary in that sense like Jeannie was given free reign by HBO to kind of bring out those stories whereas that in a documentary that's quite rare like you know a lot of um, big production companies kind of tell the director exactly what they want um, and you're supposed to kind of conform to a a documentary style and especially with music as well so um, it was really great that we had the opportunity to just go with the flow of something and and follow the emotion of a story yeah and I loved how they focused on some of the people behind the scenes not just the main actors um to see like you say some of the uh sacrifices some of them have made I know there was uh one scene I think where a woman was getting quite teary because she'd missed 
maybe her child's birthday or was just talking to them on the phone they'd had so much time away but there was such dedication to this program it was so huge and uh, you did a very intense binge watching session by the sounds of it so <laughs> you get yeah. the scope of you know the magnitude the budget this show just breaks so many boundaries um wonderful wonderful program so were you take sort of taking notes on the types of music used did you want to keep some kind of continuity in the documentary from the show yeah, I did actually. I, I made a massive list of uh, scenes and music that I thought were really interesting as it was going on. I, I made sure to do that because obviously it's so big. So, um, and I guess one of the things that I took from it, and the only thing I, I kind of really started to take from it for the score that occurred with Jeannie was that um, I loved the low strings that he used um, in the original series because there's a lot of cello and a lot of double basses and a lot of the melodies come from that rich kind of low end and that was the thing that I took away from it the most um actually when I first uh sent Jeannie demos she my kind of instructions when she was working on the edit which obviously took like six months um she wanted different tracks for different types of weather so because of the extreme conditions that they filmed in you know they went from kind of hot Spain and Croatia to uh, (laughs) the icy winds of Iceland but then in Northern Ireland like the rain and the darkness of winter and you know being out in the mountains and and it was very very extreme so she she kind of said right I, I need different types of weather music and so I gave her loads of like electronic stuff because I kind of wanted to stay away from the original score in that sense and um and when we placed it to picture it just didn't work it was just not right at all um and so I went back and looked and we went for the more handmade acoustic feel you know the fact that it is set in and based in um the it's filmed in Northern Ireland um, so it has got a kind of folk element to it and I just used the cello then from you know the um, that was the only kind of influence from the score really apart from obviously the the very beginning and the theme tune Jeannie wanted on a music box which um, I usually make with paper and, and a hole puncher and that opened up with this gorgeous tapestry that's been made by these weavers in Belfast so that worked really well but that was the only kind of thing actually from the original Okay, interesting. And um, was there a favourite bit of the documentary that was particularly um, interesting to score for you or, you know, enjoyable, I suppose, if that's the right word, something that worked really well when you watched it back and you thought, ah, that's that's got it, that's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's an extra um, called Andy Andy. McClave. Yes, I remember him. I watched this years ago, honestly. I remember him. He was brilliant, wasn't he? (laughs) yeah he's like obsessed he loves Game of Thrones and like he's been in it from the very beginning and then eventually in the last series like he gets uh, you know a part like he's at the front of this like battle the final battle scene it's him at the front kind of yelling and and um and that was just a pleasure to score because I was able to kind of use big drums and a lot more kind of a dark kind of rich um basses and and synthesizers and things and really go for it in that way and to score his kind of elation I mean he looks so angry and he's like so plays the part of this character but but you know for all of us it was just like yes go on so that that was the most fun part for me I thought that was brilliant 
Mm, yeah, what a brilliant character he was. Um, a nice surprise as well. Almost had his own little role in the documentary, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. It's just so keen. I think, she, you know, Jeannie had like a list of about 24 kind of people that she'd followed and 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 he was one of the first that stuck and stayed. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's it's all about having characterful uh, people on, on the screen, isn't it? Mm, yeah, what a guy. And um, considering you did such an intense binge watch, I would love to just know your opinion. What did you think of, you know, the last series? It, it, lots of people said it was rushed. What did you think of the ending? Were you surprised? Yeah, I was surprised. I think I was like the general public very surprised at it. Um, and I and I I would have really liked more dialogue. I would have liked more kind of, you know, the essence of what they had done before. But I, I know I know why they ended it that way, and I think they ended it in the right way. And uh, you know, there was a lot of stillness, and it was just all about the effects. And I think they did the right thing in the end. I think a lot of people were kind of disappointed, but actually, I think it's a good ending. I think it it needed to close. It needed to stop. Mm. Uh, nobody could handle the machine anymore (laughs) (laughs) and of course the author hasn't actually finished the book so I wonder if he's seen the reaction to it and gone "Hmm, maybe I'll write it a little bit differently (laughs) (laughs) no it doesn't I don't think people are annoyed at the ending or maybe they are at the original you know who ended up on the throne I think it's just the the speed of how they got there you know like you say it was they took a lot of time in the other seasons to get you know travel to locations a lot of things that were important would happen during this time and then suddenly it was like bam 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 the end it was like whoa whoa there <laughs> what's going on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> give me a second so yeah I can see but there were some strong episodes the I can't remember which episode it was it was the one with the big battle I've never been so tense watching oh a God. tv program or a film in my life I was screaming at the tv like a lunatic oh it's insane yeah and and really, and the guy that is ahead of all the special effects and everything, like it's just like the amount of work that went into into creating those fires and explosions on you know on land. <laughs> it wasn't all done in special effects. And I think that's the most brilliant thing about the TV that show is that it is it is like a theatre show, but taken to the next level in some ways because they are there. They are they are within the flames when they're acting. Um, yeah, amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah, I mean, when Arya stabbed the Night King, that was just excellent. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people cheered when that happened. It had to happen, so yeah, good stuff. Yes. <laughs> excellent moment, and it was one of those programmes where you don't really get it now, where they release one a week. Now you just watch everything, well, as you did, obviously, but you had a lot of catching up to do. Um, you know, yeah. it was quite nice to be forced to watch them one at a time and look forward to it once a week, I think. Mm, yeah it's and it's funny seeing how it developed I mean like the first few series were definitely like soft porn (laughs) they were weren't they yeah you can see why like I mean everyone always says oh sex sells and stuff but you can see why some people got hooked early on and then it became more of a phenomenon as it you know the story plot and everything developed into into really really good storylines I think what's you know, I always got, and I think that you, you probably agree, it was the killing off of characters just suddenly. Like you think they're never going to go and then they just go and yeah. you're like, oh my God, the bravery to do that. I think that's changed a lot of like plots and scripts and things since. Because um, normally you're just stuck with the same characters and people are afraid to kill them off. But this was definitely the opposite. <laughs> yeah, you'd be so invested, wouldn't you? And then suddenly you're like, Oh, or maybe you think you start thinking they should have died in a better way with me because at least they're going to go <laughs> yeah. make it 
more worthwhile death, whatever that means. But um, yeah, I totally agree. It did take you by surprise, didn't it? Yeah. And um, so on to, let's go on to, so The Deceived. So this is obviously what you won the MPG Award for, Original UK Score Recording of the Year. So this is the psychological thriller, which is about Ophelia, who falls for her married lecturer, Michael. When he mysteriously disappears, she tracks him down and discovers that his wife has died in a fire. So very intriguing. And I watched the trailer for that today as well. And I think this is on Netflix now as well, maybe. Is that right? Yeah, it's just moved over to the UK Netflix. And I think in the next few weeks, it will go to the US as well, or the rest of the world. (laughs) Oh, how exciting. Yeah, it's good. These um, mini-series at the moment, I don't know if they've just got everyone during lockdown, but particularly over the last few years, they do so well, don't they? These thriller sort of little mini-series on Netflix and BBC One and, well, all the channels, really. So this must have been a really interesting one to get your teeth into. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I guess one of the things that happened as well was that we we were up against that kind of lockdown deadline. It was looming, like, you know, things started to kick off um, and we had to try and get as much done before uh, everything closed, basically. So there was a real pressure at the very end of it. And actually, you know, like the last episode, we just couldn't do. So we did it at the very beginning of lockdown when the world was kind of just everybody was just closing up. It just, I was desperately trying to finish everything and work out how to record musicians remotely, how to mix remotely. It was, and within a timescale. It actually didn't come out until the summer. They they kind of waited quite a while, but I think, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, the things about it was when I was making that soundtrack, the, I was in my own lockdown for like, three months (laughs) so from kind of like Christmas up until March I was like you know I'd got all my food deliveries sorted I had like a popcorn machine I had a coffee machine just to get me through the workload Mm. and I had the whole of April planned with gigs and a holiday and to see all my friends that I hadn't seen for ages and then obviously lockdown hit and I was like oh oh my god what do I do (laughs) because I've I've been in isolation already for like three months like this is not good Mm. so um so yeah that took a bit of adjusting but I guess that intensity and the the intensity of the music and the intensity of the script and storyline kind of really came through with that series I mean they could have it was only four, four parts but they could have really stretched it out for maybe six there was so much that happened in episode one that was just like boom 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 and um, you know, I loved it. I thought I thought it was a brilliant show to work on and everybody was so keen and, and enthusiastic for everything. And, you know, it, the score in particular was, it went from being kind of a soundscape type score to being more in line with a Hitchcock film. Um, and, you know, they were, they were referencing the showrunners and execs were kind of referencing Dilemma for Murder and Rebecca. And so it went from, yeah, using just more like soundscapes and drones that I'd recorded in the house that's on set to full on string scoring and to the point of like, you know, like I would spend days with a string quartet recording them. And uh, (laughs) and then when lockdown hit, trying to find the musicians to do the exact same. So it, it sounded the same as a beautiful quartet. Cool. Interesting. So were you left to interpret how it should sound in your own way or did you work closely with say the directors or director to decide on how it should sound I mean was it a bit um Hitchcockian if that's a word 
Yeah, I mean, um, so I, the this the what how the process worked was I'd kind of been taken on board from around October, um, twenty nineteen time, and uh, I'd said to them, "Look, I want to go to the house because it's integral to the story, and it's a beautiful old old house." And I was like, I'd love to sample sounds from in there. They had a massive array of crystal cut glass that was just everywhere, like in this living room. And so I ended up using a lot of that, making those into kind of this ethereal instrument that you'll hear on the soundtrack that became kind of like the voice of the house, um, this ghostly presence. And, you know, they had these gorgeous, huge old doors with these big brass handles and and so I just ended up recording loads of samples and sounds and, t- and making those into the rhythms. And that was going to be the kind of soundtrack. Um, it was going to be atmospheric. And But then as they were editing and, and adding in temp music, they found that the music needed to drive a lot more. So they started putting in Bernard Herrmann, uh, like the soundtrack of Get Out, uh, Dark, Ben Foster's Dark, you know, the Netflix series. Mm-hmm. And these are all epic, big budget type scores um with beautiful big string lines and atmospheres and I was like oh my god how am I going to do this with the time frame that I have because this by this time it was Christmas and I was like I've basically got about two and a half weeks for each episode to you know write each one then record it um mix it send it off get all the exact notes back um, so it just became this big, massive mission of like scoring strings like left, right and centre to add to the drama and tension and, and you know, really referencing those original temp tracks, actually, um, that were that were placed in there. So I guess like in some ways we had a lot of discussions and a lot of like back and forth with everybody involved, the director, the execs, but ultimately like you are constrained to time and you're constrained to a budget as well and I think that's you know I think that's why it was kind of acknowledged by the MPG people because it it kind of went against the curve of like what is possible and and how much work and time frame goes into stuff as well um so yeah it was it was a good show to work on I I learned a lot I learned a lot about the way I work and how to drive that forward and and the limits that you can go to and I really pushed my limit to the point of like I don't want to do this again (laughs) it's too much good learning experience but moving on yeah (laughs) okay so I'm curious so how do you get that balance right with composing when to I suppose hold back when to add music when to let the scene breathe a bit or is it just um taking it scene by scene as it were and making that call when you get to that moment yeah, I think um, the, that call definitely comes when you get to that moment. But I think it's important, A, to have a palette of sounds that you can draw on that then work across the whole series. Um, so I really kind of, I guess because of every, all the restraints, I really had to be re- very strict with what I was using and how I was going to use it and then fully explore those elements like the different types of string playing, the the um, the palette of sound that I wanted in the string playing. So it wasn't just about uh, I need a quartet and I need it to be sounding gorgeous with reverb. Actually, I needed it to be kind of as close as you possibly could to hear the scratchiness of the bow and and 
you know almost like you were feeling that the the rosin going up and down the boat like it's mm. um it was really important to record in that way uh but actually then that lent it to the electronic side of it because what I did as well was when I had the time I got a, the violinist the first violinist in the quartet to come to the house and she'd never improvised before but I'm a violinist but I needed to work like the guitar pedals and and things at the same time so she kind of just I got her to play loads of high notes and I just affected it for and we did that for a whole day and I got so much kind of palette of sound that would work and weave around the string parts which was really amazing um but yeah those choices of temp music and how you interpret them it is really important because you can't copy stuff you've got to take it as an approach of like okay they've placed that there because at this point that's when the the drop is happening and at this point that's when another instrument comes in and that's the tempo that they roughly want and that's the approach that I took to to writing I think sometimes in the deceived maybe there's too much music (laughs) um when I watch it back I go oh my god like you know for a four-part series 45 minutes 50 minutes long each one there is like two and a half hours of solid music um which is a lot for a tv show so short like you would maybe expect that over maybe six or eight part Mm. um so yeah, it was it was a fun time. <laughs> well, it still did very well. You still got the MPG. You must have been doing something right. I think it's very easy to be self-critical, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think maybe it's the the Irish side of me. I don't know. I'm so self-critical, or maybe it's the fact that I'm a Virgo. I'm not sure, <laughs> <laughs> or a combination of both. <laughs> yeah, I think it's fine I bet um, anyone watching it and then sort of listening to the music as well wouldn't even pick up on thinking there was too much music but you're obviously so heavily involved of course in it it's all you focus on so it's probably very different for someone watching it without those thoughts going on in their head <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely as long as it, it it speaks with the drama that is you know my job is done I, don't, I didn't want it to be a focus of the 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 drama but actually you know, as, as the kind of, yeah, I am being hard on myself because as the kind of the, the locks went down and everybody was getting into the show and the edits and stuff, you know, the music did have to take quite a main role in pushing a lot of the drama forward. And that was, that was a lot of pressure um, to get right. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, we live and we learn. So um, you're talking to me from your home studio today. That's right, isn't it, Hannah? I am, yes. I'm in Northern Ireland at the moment. Mm, okay, so I'm just curious, because um, our listeners and our readers love to know about, you know, what kit um, all those creatives out there are using. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you've got there in your setup. So what your monitors are, your your door, like any of your go-to plugins, or any of that sort of thing. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I'm currently looking at you on Zoom uh, through an iMac. <laughs> Uh, which is a new addition because um, I was doing it all on my laptop before. Um, so I've got two screens in front of me and, a, and above my head is a screen uh, currently with a, another TV show that I'm working on with a, a still of a guy in that. Um, I use, I've got these two amazing Neumann speakers that are incredible. Um, and I've got a, a Keylab Arturia um, MIDI keyboard in front of me. But I think, I guess, my kind of main essential kit is I've got a Universal Audio Apollo, which everything goes through, but a UA um, LA610, which is an amazing compressor. So whenever I'm recording anything, 
it all goes through that, uh, be it vocals, synths, whatever. Um, and I also have another kind of compressor on the other side of the desk for my piano, which is in the room next door, um, which I have the the wooden fronts taken off just so you can hear a lot of the mallets and the sounds. I really, really love playing with um the piano like that and then yeah I've got a space a Roland space echo an RE201 although it's heavily unused at the moment which is really sad but I think because of deadlines and stuff being so fast um I find it quite hard to uh to to use it when I'm scoring it's more for like records and things where you've got time to have a play and and really work a sound a bit more but um yeah I use uh, the universal audio do uh, an amazing plugin of it, um, an RE two hundred one, and and that's really great. Uh, and yeah, I use quite a lot of plugins, like um, and they, like Audio Thing, do some amazing tape stuff. Uh, Sound Toys, uh, they have a great uh, decapitator, which is like a, di- um, a distortion and a crystallizer, which just always seems to warp everything really beautifully. Um, and then behind me, I've got some synths, like a Juno 60 and a Wasp, like an EDP Wasp and a Dave Smith Mofa and some Moog synthesizers. So, yeah, I've got quite a lot in this little space. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Nice little setup you've got there, for sure. Um, so are you allowed to talk about the next um, series you're working in or is that top secret at the moment? No, I mean, they've, they've all been announced on online. I guess I, I haven't been announced, <laughs> but- <laughs> Uh, no, an amazing film that's uh, based on a true story called Agent Freeguard. Um, that's currently finished shooting. It stars James Norton and Gemma Arterton. Uh, and they've just started going into the edit of that. So I've just started working with the directors on that. And actually, uh, the two directors that I know from Northern Ireland, Adam Patterson, uh, who has, they worked on the BBC Salisbury Poisoning um TV show that came out last year as well uh but he's a childhood friend we grew up together in summer holidays in a caravan site <laughs> so, no way um, yeah and he's done really well he's kind of gone from being a cameraman to directing and being on you know making panorama series um to doing the BBC, the Salisbury Poisonings and then this is their first feature film and it's with Declan Lawn as well who's a, a writer and a director so they're doing it together um so it's really great to work on that. And then I'm also working on a Sky TV series uh, called Midwich Cuckoos, which is based on a John Wyndham novel. Uh, and they're currently shooting at the moment as well. Mm. So these are all things that will be out probably the end of 2022. Okay. I would hope. Nice to hear that you've got so many projects um, on the go, though, especially after the year of Ron's had. Oh my God, I know. And I, I did The Deceived and I was like so up for doing another show and a film and, and nothing was coming. <laughs> and like, I was like, damn, I'm really in the, the motion of doing this right now. And I guess that's, you know, I, I what happened in lockdown was I, probably a lot of other composers will say the same, that they had a lot of interviews. You met, I met maybe like 10 to 12 different directors for the first time on Zoom and um it was a really, really odd process not to meet somebody in person and talk about something. Um, and I, I kind of started to doubt my Zoom persona because I was like, maybe I'm being too friendly because I just wasn't getting any jobs whatsoever. I was like, 
maybe just they I look really young or something and everyone thinks I can't do this or <laughs> I don't know but um I mean it all worked out in the end and it gave me time actually all that time to to work on some records and and release like fur wave which is the thing that's taken off at the moment so Fantastic. yeah like, yeah lockdown was beneficial in some ways <laughs> Yeah, well, that's good to hear that there's been some plus points out of what is a terrible time. Uh, but nice to know that, that a lot of work still goes on and perhaps there's a backlog now and everything will start coming out eventually now that everything's opening up, all the productions, all that sort of thing. So that's great. Um, okay, so thank you so much for joining. And everyone, go and watch The Deceived on Netflix um, at the moment and then you can listen to Hannah's wonderful work in action so um thank you hannah uh thanks for joining us it's been such a nice time talking to you today oh thank you alice thank you you're so welcome have a great day then cheers bye bye headliner radio supporting the creative community